0: 90% Mental. I'm your host Grant Parr. Thank you for joining us for our third episode. What a week has it been watching the Olympics. There's been some incredible performances, incredible examples of mental performance, how it's prepared these athletes for their competition, how it's prepared them to deal with certain pressures of the Olympics. So what a week, what a week of the Olympics. With that being said, I have an incredible guest today. I am so excited to have Mike Pedersen, who is the Olympic women's foil coach for Team Canada. Mike is an incredible coach, has over 25 years of coaching and being an athlete within the fencing world. And he is passionate, super, super passionate about mental performance, not only as a coach, not only implementing it, working with his athletes, but creating a culture within his club that he has in San Francisco the Golden Gate Fencing Club. He just lives and breathes mental performance. As we talk more with Mike you're gonna hear his personal stories as an athlete and as an Olympic coach. He's gonna dive deeper in how to achieve flow or zone within the sport of fencing. He will also discuss how to disconnect from the outcome, from a coaching perspective, and also from an athlete's perspective. I can't express how excited I am to introduce Mike Pederson and the the creative knowledge that he has pertaining to mental performance. I'd like to introduce Mike Pederson. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Grant. Great. I just wanted to thank you for being on uh, my podcast and. I'm really excited to have someone like you to talk about mental performance because over the past year or so that I've gotten to know you, you and I have had some really good conversations and very interesting conversations about mental performance and your background as an athlete, as a fencer, your background as an elite and Olympic coach in the sport of fencing. There's so many interesting and incredible things that are in your mind about mental performance. But before I get into kind of your path and your journey with mental performance and sports psychology, I kind of wanted to dig in a little bit and just ask you the question of, when did you realize that mental performance was a vital component to an athlete's success, whether as an athlete or as a coach?
1: 1985. Big Ten Championships, Northwestern University in uh, Evanston, Illinois. Uh, I was in the gold medal match against um, a fencer from Ohio State. And uh, I think I had one of those flow moments Mm. where everything just went slow. I mean... It was really quite an eye-opening experience. Um, I was so dialed in, I was so tuned in to what I was doing, what my opponent was doing, that I could literally make an attack and see my tip go towards his target. I watched his hand, I saw where it was coming, I was able to avoid his blade and score the points. It was a really, really classic um, example of being in that that state of mind that's called flow, just like really zoned in, Um, and I think from there I realized that if I could replicate that state if I could do it again, either as an athlete or um, as a coach with my athletes then performance was going to be enhanced and um, we were going to have um, more successes than not
0: and how many more times can you can you go back and and kind of think about or reflect on how many times how many more times did you actually experience that that flow or in the zone experience? You know, as an
1: athlete, um, I did not work directly with a mental um, performance coach. Um, I had a few coaches who did some visualization with me. And some relaxation exercises, breathing scripts, that sort of thing. But I never had uh, the opportunity to really dig into that, that experience, and, and see if I could replicate it on a systematic, um, in a systematic way. So I think it was it was it was it was accidental. It was it was how I was feeling that day, and and how my week had been and how I was excited or how I felt about the tournament that I was in or the bout that I was in. I certainly had those moments, but the one that really stood out for me was that very first one because it was so shocking. I have lots of opposite moments, uh, but I don't have have, um, a lot of um, examples of, of being in the flow, and I think it's partially because I didn't work or I haven't worked when I was an athlete. I hadn't worked with a...
0: Sports, uh, sports performance coach. You know, it's it's interesting when you, when we bring up the topic of uh, flow and being in the zone. Yeah. What comes up for me is usually, you know, when I think of zone and flow, there's there's athletes like Michael Jordan, uh, Kobe Bryant, uh, Steph Curry. Uh, don't want to necessarily focus on basketball the whole time, but even Joe Montana, Tony Gwynn. There's these elite athletes that 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 on a day-to-day basis they drop into that zone and that flow as a coach dealing with you know the population that you coach from the Olympic down cuz you do own your own fencing club in San Francisco Golden Gate Fencing Club is it difficult how are, is it difficult to, to teach flow or to teach a, a a fencer to get into that zone
1: i i am not certain that you teach flow. I think what you teach um, is preparation in terms of the psychology of how you approach combat. So with athletes, um, we concentrate a lot on um, anxiety control, uh, focus and refocus, uh, control, um, breathing and relaxation, distraction control, um, energy control, control, so self-talk and, 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 and um, you know, everything that goes along with that. So I don't think you teach flow. I think you teach the tools that you use or need that help you get into that state. And then I think when it happens, you highlight that with your athlete and you go over it and say, you know, that was a fantastic um, example of you fencing at your absolute best. Nothing was wrong with that. How did you get there? And you reflect back on, on what you did in terms of preparation to get to that point where the athlete performed. And I think that's um, the same process, although on a different scale of intensity. Um, from the Olympics all the way down to working with a, you know, newly competitive developmental fencer in the youth category, you know, they have anxieties, they have stress, they get distracted, they get, um, feel pressure, and so no matter if it's an Olympic athlete or or a um, youth athlete, you're working with that athlete to develop the tools they need to get into that state of flow and into that zone where everything clicks.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I agree with you one hundred percent. When you do look at at the Olympic level, and you do look at flow or zone, how often do you see that with the Olympic fencers that you that you um, that you work with? Whether if, if you see them in practice dropping into that flow state, or obviously in competition, but how often do you see that at the Olympic level?
1: I think you see. I think you see it more often than you realize, but for shorter durations. Uh, I think one of the hardest things about fencing is how it starts and stops. Um, And a typical direct elimination bout, which is, you know, what the Olympics is all about. It's 15 touches, three periods for foil and epee, uh, two periods usually for sabre, there is a halt after every action. So I'm in the flow, and I've just made a great touch. There's a halt, the referee has to call the action, and then you have to get back to your starting line. So in a, in a, in a race like a 400 meter you know, free in swimming, or a 800 meter um, um, track and field event, or um, a pool vault, you're basically starting the action and completing the action in one process. So there may be different heats, but every heat is complete. Whereas in fencing, it's start, stop, start, 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 stop. And so an athlete needs to really be able to maintain that state of flow with all these interruptions. And so I think it's difficult in fencing Um, to maintain a consistent state of flow, which is why one of my big emphasis or, you know, my big pushes is to emphasize the the, the focus-refocus and get yourself back into that state as fast as you can. Um, You definitely see it there. Um, You see examples of brilliant, brilliant comebacks. Uh, Like just recently in Rio, um, you know, Alexander Masiales was behind... um, in the semifinal bout where the eight, I can't remember if it was the eight or the four, um, but it was against Avola from Italy and uh, I think he was behind by five or four touches and Avola had 12, 13, or 14 touches and he, he needed 15 to win. Um, and Alex did a brilliant job of, of, of refocusing, re- energizing himself getting one touch and throwing the whole changing the whole momentum of the bout and he was clearly in the zone cuz he could do no wrong from that point forward so it's you, know, you see these these examples of of that state i think in in 3 to 4 or 5 touch segments and then the other athlete pushes back because it's a combat sport it's not um, one constant um, competition that's the same for you like a swimmer in his lane there's all this pushback back and forth um, from the other athletes and from other coaches and from outside sources like the audience or the referee and so you see it in four or five in touching the four or five uh, touch strings and then it breaks and it changes and then you have to get back into it so that's the way that i think flow really works in in fencing i think it's a very rare um Event in fencing where you have an athlete so totally in the flow that it just goes one through fifteen without without any any sort of pushback
0: from another outside source. Absolutely, and I, I I actually I applaud the fencers that that can stay in the zone because zone is you know being that flow, being in a constant flow is is kind of what the goal is. But when you're starting and stopping there takes a a mindset to allow yourself to to still stay in that zone when things are stopping and starting and also dealing with all the external distractions that are there within the environment of fencing. Right. You know, whereas you look at football, there is, you know, you, you do have that start and stop, but you also have 30 seconds to regain your focus. So, yeah, I think, I mean... I think in fencing you
1: have a maximum of maybe like ten seconds, right? But sometimes you have a little bit longer during the minute break. But but the idea is, and then this is again why I believe so strongly in, in, in implementing that sort of practice or that sort of, of effort to maintain that flow in practice, in training. You have to work that in training in order to be able to work that in competition, and so. You know, when you're an, a coach and you're working with a, with a fencer and you're you're trying to get them to the highest levels possible, you're doing situational bouting and situational training that mimic the stress of being in the start-stop situations, and and they have to practice maintaining their composure and maintaining their focus in training in order
0: to be able to do it um, in competition. So. Absolutely, and I think a nice segue to come from this topic is is mental toughness. And there takes a level of, of mental toughness or overall you just need to have a level of mental toughness to, to deal with, you know, internal and external distractions, to allow yourself to still stay in, in that flow state. What do you think it takes to be mentally tough? I think the very first thing that it takes is a decision to accept the victory or defeat completely.
1: You're either going to win or you're going to lose, and and if you worry about losing, you're probably not fencing your best. If you're worrying only about the win and, and that you have to win, you're probably not um, uh, going to be at your best. It's when you totally accept the fact that it's victory or defeat, and it doesn't matter. What you need to do is um, accept whatever adversity comes your way as a challenge rather than a roadblock, and focus only on the moment, only on that zone on that one touch that you're working right now and then if when that touch is over, good or bad, you get back to your starting line and you do the same thing again and you just keep focusing on on those small details rather than that big picture and I think that is what helps you be mentally tough when I've seen athletes break down, it's when they start to Conjecture. What? What if I don't get this touch? What if you know I'm going to lose? And then they, it's just a downward spiral from there. So being mentally tough is this ability to let go of victory or defeat and just fight for every touch, a hundred percent focused on that touch.
0: Absolutely, and I, you know, I've seen it. Um, I've actually experienced it as an athlete. Is when you. When you start to let that negative self-talk become a reality, that obviously doesn't allow you to be mentally tough, and it takes you out of you know out of your zone. With regards to being mentally tough, do you think are are athletes born with that with that component of being mentally tough, or is it something that an athlete has to work at?
1: You know, I think that's a very hard question. Um, to answer absolutely I think there's there are probably athletes and genetics that that occur um, that make some people more mentally tough than others from the get go but I strongly believe that mental toughness is a learned process and internalized um, throughout your training being mentally tough is a decision to accept winning and losing, a decision to not um, let outside distractions you know, impact you, a decision to stick to your plan and trust your abilities and your training. When you have that athlete who can do that, um, I, I think maybe a little bit is, is natural, but I think a lot of it is learned through whatever societal... Um, influences that athlete has had growing up you know either in the family or in school or in sports I think there are many many um, influences that that make you mentally tough um, you know I think it's it's rare that you just get somebody who comes out that way I think they're made. And I think it's a learning process.
0: Okay, good, good. Well, just hearing you and also knowing you for the last you know, year or so, you're very, you're very passionate about this topic. You're passionate when you're on the floor working with your athletes. You're passionate about sitting in your, your house talking about this topic. Where do you think the passion comes from with regards to sports psychology and mental performance? Um,
1: well, I guess my question, I'm going to ask a question to you, Grant. Are you asking whether what it is that makes me passionate about sports performance? Correct. Training? Correct. Absolutely. Because I like to win. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I like to win. Yes. And if there's a tool that I can use as a coach that gives my athletes um, and my club an edge that is something I can do with my athletes on a regular basis, then I'm going to do that um, process. It can be physical conditioning, it can be tactical work, it can be technical work, or it can be um, sports performance and mental training work. And I do it because I like to win, and I believe in the value of mental performance coaching, but I also do it because I am fascinated by how it works with athletes and what you can do with athletes With sports performance training, so I think that's really where my passion comes from—is this drive? I love to win. I hate losing. I accept it, but I don't
0: like it. Well, and and I want to—that's great because I want to focus on winning. And you know, we we do talk—you know—as mental performance consultants, working with teams and working with athletes, we talk about disconnecting from the outcome. And we all know at the end of the day in, in every sport, the goal is to win. And especially in the sport of fencing, where that is it, it's, it's either you, you win or you lose. Right. So, how do you, wh- what is your perception of disconnecting from the outcome, focusing on improving and learning, when at the end of the day in the game of, or in the sport of fencing, it's all about winning? How do you go about working with an athlete on disconnecting from that outcome? Um,
1: Well, I think the first... uh, The first step is to celebrate losses just as much as you celebrate victories. And what I mean by that is... I can have, and I, and I find this particularly true in developmental fencers, uh, but even at the Olympic level, you need to recognize a truth about sport. There's a winner and there's a loser. And I don't care if you're the best athlete in your sport in the world, you are going to lose some contests. And so As a coach, in order to get an athlete to buy into the fact that winning is ultimately the goal, you need to push the message to the athlete that losing is part of winning. and You can do that by reframing of what a win is. So a good example is if I have a cadet-level fencer who is under 17 years of age, fencing a senior-level fencer who could be 23, 24, 25, there's an experience differential, there's an age differential, there's a maturity differential, and for that 17-year-old, you know, looking at it from a coach's perspective, I would say, okay, odds are we are not going to win this bout. but what I can do is I can reframe what a win is. So before the bout, we set a plan, we set a strategy. we set goals for that bout. I want you know them to work in this zone of the strip or that zone of the strip. I want them to work more offensively than defensively, so on and so forth. I never really tell the athlete, hey, you're going to lose. But what I do is I reframe what I want them to do so that as they're doing it, a couple of things happen. One, I'm giving them positive feedback from the sidelines saying, hey, that's it. That's exactly what we talked about. Keep working out. That was a great touch. And then that positive reinforcement does a couple of things. It feeds the process of, hey, this is kind of a cool thing. My coach has given me a lot of positive feedback here, and I'm working really hard on our plan that we mapped out for this bout, and I'm doing what we talked about, and this is a good thing, and I'm feeling really confident all of a sudden. And then all of a sudden you get this this athlete who who focuses on the the, the steps of the process rather than that outcome goal, that that end goal of winning. And win or lose, as a coach, I've won because that's an athlete that is working, not disconnected from from the outcome win. They're working within that framework of process, 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 step by step by step. Ultimately, as they get better and better at that process, it becomes more natural for them. And they approach bouts and and competition with, of course, the goal to win. I want to win, but here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it step by step by step. And if I can hit these goals, win or lose, 15, 14, 15, 13, if I've done that, and I'm I'm not happy about loss, but I'm really um, in a good place because of that. So for me, it's reframing those expectations Getting them not to focus on winning as the only way of being successful, and then creating that plan in the bout or in the competition that lets them, um, you know, have these successes in the earlier stages of the bout rather than at the end. That was a long winded response
0: to your question. There you go. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, I, I think, you know, from a Simplicity standpoint. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you know focusing on each touch. Mm-hmm. Um, the more that you focus on each touch, and you're and you're also looking at what you're improving on during the process, what you can learn from it. The more that you're actually improving, will most likely head you in the direction of winning, and keeping yourself focused on the right task which is focus on each touch will allow you to, to streamline your thoughts and not worry about the outcome and having that roller coaster ride of winning and losing. Correct. Correct. Great. You know, from a coach's standpoint, how important do you think it is for a coach to implement a mental performance program uh, within a team setting? Um, so that's an interesting question for, for my
1: sport. Um, because fencing is is primarily an individual sport with a team component. There are team competitions, but each match is fenced individually. So the dynamics of a team are incredibly different than the dynamics of of an individual um, athlete. And then you put on top of that the dynamics of a center or a a club. And um, that further... Complicates the picture so for a coach I'm going to start with the club for a coach I think it's really important to have a to make a decision in your coaching career as to whether or not you believe that sports performance training can be a useful tool in your coaching toolkit and if it is, then you need to make a deliberate choice to find a system or find a, a philosophy or approach that works for you and that you can, can buy into. And then you need to work with your athletes at a, uh, in a regular manner and basically build this idea into the culture of your club. So from a club perspective, I think it's more global and sy- systematic and systemic. You need to build it into the daily training um, of your, your, your club. If you say, okay, two weeks, two weeks from now, our national championships, and we're gonna have our first mental performance session, um, I don't think that's a very useful approach. It has to be systematic and systemic across everything that you do. In a team dynamic, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, how your team responds on the bench is just as important important as how your athlete is performing on the strip. And so we talk a lot about team dynamics and team roles with um, our our teams. Delineate them out. We have, you know, certain um, rules of operation. Only one voice is heard yelling at the athlete on the strip. And sometimes it's not the coach. Sometimes I'll choose to work through another athlete because I know that the athlete who's on the strip listens really well to this other person. I'm okay with that. I don't need to. Be person giving the advice, I'll just whisper into the ear of the other person. So how you create this, this culture of excellence and this culture of, of performance enhancement is really, um, again, really has to be deliberate. We all need to buy into it, we all need to, to own it, and we all need to use it on a regular basis, both in training when we're doing team matches and at competition. So I think it's very critical for a coach to build this into a team culture, because if you don't, if you do the two-week-out approach, it's, it's, it can be detrimental, um, because then you have athletes who aren't used to using it and and, and and working with it. And they're either gonna say, yeah, whatever, coach, or they're gonna start worrying, oh my gosh, I didn't do this, we know I need to do this. And they're not used to the process again. So it just adds another level of stress. So for me, it's very important to have this systematic, systemic approach to implementing it into your athletes on a regular basis, team or individual,
0: but, but. Well, have you ever worked with an athlete that that wasn't buying into the mental performance? Absolutely. Uh, how'd you go about dealing with that athlete? Um, so, uh,
1: it's, it's, an interest, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, in the club and over the long-term perspective of developing multiple athletes you know, in a culture that... That is um, very positively focused on mental performance strategies. I deal with it by um, accepting the fact first that they're not convinced that it's useful, and then I start work. I work with the athletes who do buy into it a lot, and then I start working with um, the idea that you know, hey, look, you know, you're in practice, you're pretty much on par with this other fencer but in competition, this other fencer is much more, is performing much more consistently than you are. You're having like a great day and then a bad day and then a mediocre day and then a good day and then a couple of bad days. Whereas this other fencer is performing really um, consistently on the good or higher level. And I'm like, what do you think the difference is? You train in the same center, you work with the same coach, do the same footwork actions you do the same drills you have the same tactical setups what do you think the difference is and so i just start asking the fencer you know really do you want to you know want to you know, get rid of this inconsistency or do you want to start you know um being more consistent and then i just tell them i'm going to tell you what the difference is in my opinion it's the mental performance training And so I approach it that way. I I do accept the fact that some people just don't buy into it. And there are always those outliers, the people who are phenomenally successful, and they say they don't buy into um, working with a sports performance consultant. But I guarantee you, if they are phenomenally successful, they are using the tools of sports performance, whether they know it or not. guarantee it.
0: Now, do you ever you know, working with an athlete that is, you know, on the fence with mental performance or is not buying into it, are there athletes or fencers, former or current, that you, you, that you use as, as examples? So are there, are there fencers that are just totally bought into this practice where you can use them as examples? Sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I um, currently work with uh, the women's foil national team in Canada. And um, because of them, um, my fencing center has a lot of contact with um, the Canadian national team and the Canadian women's foil program. And I use those athletes as examples all the time. Um, You know, I particularly call out, um, um, like, Eleanor Harvey, who I think has, over the last three years, really skyrocketed in terms of her uh, successes Um, and I think partly that is because the program that we have put together in Canada is integrated with sports performance training and they work with a um, sports performance uh, consultant up in uh, Canada on a regular basis They do, you know, he's based in BC and they do Skype calls with him on a regular basis. And I really believe that, you know, once we got Eleanor working with, and and Shannon and and, um, Alana and uh, Kelly as well, once we got them working on that skill systematically and consistently, their results were much more consistent and much higher Eleanor pulled in two silver medals at Junior World Championships, and she qualified for Rio Fences on this coming Wednesday. So I really believe that that's an example. You know, I use her as an example at my club all the time, and also with the younger athletes in Canada who are like, "Uh, you know, sports technology, I don't know. I, I have this vision of lying on a sofa and, like, Talking about my dreams, right? It's absolutely nothing about you know like that. It's all about performance enhancement, and so I use these these women um, as as a really good role model both for athletes in my club and also for the younger athletes who are coming up in the national team program uh, in Canada.
0: You know, as as a whole, when you look at mental performance in sport, and this is a two part question. uh, Do you feel that there's enough focus? On mental performance within the sport of fencing, and then what are your what's your perspective just within general and sport? Do you think that we're heading in the right direction in educating the value and the benefits of mental performance?
1: Um, you know, it's it's certainly at the highest levels, at the top levels. Uh, national team levels Uh, mental performance is is part and parcel of what you do Um, not all the athletes uh, I think work directly with a sports performance consultant but many many do Um, and I think you're seeing this trend at the highest levels because all the athletes at that level are physically strong they're fast, they're capable, they're technically very very accomplished, they're tactically very good. You know, they have this there's not a lot of disparity in that top band. So they're all looking for the edge. And one of the most legal edges that you can do is mental performance uh, training and and sport performance training and so at the top levels, I think it's very common. You're hearing it talked about, you know, with the commentators um, on, um, on the, during the Olympics right now. You hear them talk about, you know, he was in the back room visualizing or going through his routine, so on and so forth. So I think it's become very commonplace at that level. On the middle levels, um, college level, high school, I think it's hit or miss. Um, there are a lot of, you know, programs out there that are very resistant to change. They've done it this way for years, and this has always worked for them. Um, and I think it's, it's maybe 35%, 40% of those programs have had some contact with mental performance uh, consultants, and, and that's just a guess. I'm just pulling that out of the air. Um, oddly enough, I think kids... Have more access to mental performance consultants than like high school students and college students, and the reason I say that is there is an element in sport, and it's not just fencing; it's it's gymnastics, and in um, you know, baseball and hockey, and and you know speed skating and figure skating. It's it's all of these sports where you have parents who are looking for the edge for their kid, and so they're willing to bring their kid into a mental performance consulting situation because they think it's going to help that kid excel at the sport so it's like there's there's two peaks and then there's a valley on the other end you know there's a valley in the middle um, in terms of contact
0: you know it's it's interesting because you know from my perspective and just my experience working with with athletes and working with teams i i just i find it that sports like fencing tennis golf there's there's a huge focus um with mental performance and generally speaking there's a lot of other sports i'm sure that there are uh individuals that do focus on it but the culture of mental performance, I just don't see it as much in, you know, in all sports, and, and generally speaking. So I, I wanted to get your thought. Do you, do you see that as well? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I think, um, again, all the sports you mentioned are, are individual sports. And I think, um, you know, in regards to fencing, it really is a combat sport or a martial arts sport. And I think there's a very strong... Um, predilection in martial arts to the state of mind. I mean, um, what is that book, Zen and the Art of the Warrior or something like that? Yeah. Um, You know, it's it's a very well-known book and it talks about, you know, the value of your mindset in battle and in combat. So I think in individual sports where everything is on you, you're looking for that uh, solution, or that training system, or that aid that will help you get through to the highest levels. You know, in a team sport, that's a little that that responsibility is a little bit more dispersed. Um, well, you know, my special uh, my special my kickoff team, you know, didn't perform well. So, my, but my offense and defense were great. So it's like parcelled out. Whereas in individual sports and in martial arts, I think it's much more the responsibility of the athlete. And so I think there's a tendency for those athletes to really look for an edge. You know, if I'm a, a tackle you know, on a football team, um, I'm not going to go to the coach and say, hey, I want to work with a mental performance perf- uh, consultant because um, I think it'll help me out. You know, there's just, there, there, there is, it would, I would find that would be, I think that would be very rare. In uh, football ball or basketball or whatever. Whereas individually, it's much easier to say, hey, you know what, I need to find somebody to help me, so I'm going to go work with a performance consultant. Um, so I think there's that division, and then there's also the division in the sense that fencing in particular is very much a uh, upper-middle class sport it's not a well-funded sport you need as a as a developing fencer you need to have the wherewithal the financial wherewithal to be able to travel to compete across the country and across the globe if you're at that level and your federation is not paying for that so That means you are personally paying for it, and that if you're spending that money, you're really willing to, you know, put money into other things that help you perform nutrition, sports performance consulting, strength and conditioning, coaching, you know, that sort of thing. So, there is that element as well. And the sports that you mentioned, you know, tennis, golf, fencing they're both individual, but they're also very, affluent sports in the sense of who plays them regularly
0: so you make you you make a great point you know with with my background playing football for 13 years I don't think I've ever had a offensive lineman that's wanted to work with a mental performance consultant or sports psychology to you know so
1: (laughs) maybe quarterback you know that's a real high pressure situation, but not everybody, you know, certainly on the team, you
0: know. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I mean, I have known a, a, a few quarterbacks, a lot of wide receivers, um, even myself being a quarterback, you know, sought out having this type of work. So right. yeah, you see it more in those skill positions, right. um, exactly, versus you know, the, in the trench type of uh, athletes, like you know, on offense right. or defense to tackle. So, uh, good point. You know, this this is a very interesting question for me because when you look at a fencer, and with all the years that you have invested in the sport and worked with uh, a plethora of elite athletes, what do you think fencers struggle with the most mentally? Um,
1: oh, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of um, different things. Um, I think the biggest thing is making and trusting the right decision under performance pressure. Fencing moves fast. It's it's very fast. And you need to make your decision when you're at the start line and then you're in the middle of, of... combat with your opponent and each one of you is looking for an opportunity to strike and so you're pushing and pulling and probing and you're checking out their responses and you're trying to create the right moment and when you feel that right moment you've got to trust your your training and trust your your decision that you made on that start line and execute boom and you can't think about it um You just have to feel it and and go. And it has to be, I think the most important thing is making that right decision under performance pressure, executing those actions, tempos, and strategies, and then um, imposing your will on that bout. Because really, whether it's boxing or martial arts, or fencing. This is a one-on-one competition between two people, and the person who controls the bout and imposes the situation and creates the opportunities, the best is the one who will usually win. So for me, it's it's trusting those decisions, making that right uh, decision under pressure, executing it flawlessly trusting your abilities and then
0: imposing those, your will on that bout do you see a difference in level at the Olympic level do you see any different uh, struggles mentally or is it is it pretty much the same
1: I think um, well it, it, there's interesting so uh, I think the core struggle is the same whether you're a young fencer or an Olympic champion, you are really looking to control the bout and impose your will and situation and and ideas on the bout. Um, But I think each level has different uh, pressures that are prevalent, right? So if you're a youth fencer, it's a lot about Parental pressure and expectations and the coach pressure because the coach and the parent are two very dominant forces in your life right? In high school it's comparison to other athletes college recruiting and, 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 and growth in your sport and then in college I think it becomes transitioning to high performance balancing your study and your social and your your NCAA life right? At the Olympic level it's really one of the biggest worries um for every Olympic athlete in the United States is funding. Funding, 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 because it takes so much time and energy to be an Olympic level athlete that you don't, it's, it's very rare or very hard to be a full-time working adult and be an Olympic athlete. So funding is that outside source that just basically pushes so much pressure on, on, on Olympians. And I think, you know, the USOC has done a number of studies back in the, back in the 90s, actually, I think, 90s and up to the 2000 and and 2004 Olympics, where they asked their their Olympic athletes, you know, what were the things that really helped you, and what were the things that really hurt you, and the number one thing that was, were really difficult for the athletes to handle was the worry about money as they were training and competing um, to make the Olympics. So... It's, it's a little bit different because of the, the situations that each level is in but those core ones those those core struggles and those core things that they need to do are pretty much the same just at different um, different uh, levels of intensity
0: yes got it okay and what do you think what are the main variables that makes a great fencer mentally um. So
1: I think the very first thing is you've got to love the fight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You've got to love the fight. If you don't love the fight, you're in the wrong sport. The second thing is um, being able to make those decisions under pressure, um, controlling your anxiety. Really good fencers control their anxiety and know how to use their anxiousness to motivate them to, to get, um, you know, either more ramped up or less ramped up, kind of depending on what they need. Um, I'm a big planner, so I think one of the big differences between a top-level athlete and an um, athlete who's almost there is how well they plan their bouts and what their strategy is in uh, each, each, each match. So for me, as a coach, it's all about planning, 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 Um, opponent analysis, really understanding who and what your opponent is, and then only setting expectations for the bout in front of you. Don't worry about down the road. Just make your choices for only the bout in front of you. And so those big things, a good fencer does those things very well. Um, And then they also, I think, have ability to meet the read the bout. And so what I mean by that is, you know, in a close bout I'll get a touch, my opponent will get a touch, he'll go back and forth for a little bit. And then maybe I'll rip one or two or three touches in a row and I'll have a sense that this is you know, I I can feel my opponent starting to crumble a little bit. And so I'm gonna push harder and make it and take advantage of that 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 moment of weakness on my opponent's side. So I think a good fencer knows when to really you know, bring, bring the hammer down hard and push hard and also knows the converse of that is when to back away a little bit because um, you know they're recouping and they've made a couple touches so I got to back away and slow the bout down and then regroup, and, regroup and, and then go again at the at my opponent so I think those are really um, the the skills that a, that a high-level fencer brings to the table and um, there was a study by a fencing coach and, and um, sports psychology guy named Aladar Tobler, who asked the top Olympic coaches and world championship coaches to list the ten traits of a successful fencer. And the number one trait was that ability to impose their will on the on the opponent or on the bout. And then from there it varied, but um, you know that's that's kind of where I first found out about it and and read about it and then I started thinking about it and I was like, that's it. You can do that and you're
0: about you're good. Yeah. It takes a mindset to do that.
1: It does. It takes a mindset and a mindset takes practice and training. So so hence the sport performance enhancement and the sports performance work that, that athletes need to do.
0: Absolutely as a coach knowing that you know you're, you're very in tuned uh, with sports psychology and mental performance are there things that you do as a coach to keep your mind sound whether if it's uh, you know, throughout the week of practice or you know, before competition you're going to work with you know, a handful of athletes or even during competition are there any techniques or strategies that you use as a coach to keep your mind sound yeah
1: I mean I think um, you know, coaches are athletes in a way. Um, I'm competing through a team or through a an athlete, and I am just as susceptible as a coach to anxiety, um, performance, uh, you know, pressure. Uh, outside influences, distractions, fatigue, all of that. So, so as a coach, there are definitely things that I do. Um, you know, I, I really, I work a lot on being relaxed and calm in a, in a bout. Um, I know there are times when I have to push hard on an athlete and maybe give them a sharp push, but I do it deliberately and, and with intent rather than emotionally. I also know that there's a time for me to be really emotional and strong. You know, when an athlete is a little bit down and they need a little boost, you know, it's time for me to get up and really push them um, and help them to um, reset their expectations and their, and their mindset. Um, I do a lot of breathing. I breathe a lot of breathing. I try and, and not sit down because when I sit down, I get a little tense. So I'm a walker as a coach. I'm <laughs> up and down all over the place. Um, And that helps me kind of just let go of energy because I'm just as wired as the person on the strip a lot of the times. And by moving, I can kind of release some of that energy. Um, I prepare as much as I can um, what I say to my athletes and how I say to my athletes. I mean, to the point where, um, you know, in 2009, we were having some troubles with the U.S. team in the sense that um, I I was using terms and and ideas that they weren't really familiar with. So I literally made a cheat sheet of what my terminology was and what I meant by it and what I wanted the athlete to learn and or do when I said these things. So they they were almost like keywords, right? And I gave them to the athletes. I said, this is what I say. So if you have questions or if you hear me, this is what we're talking about. And that helped a lot in terms of of streamlining the communication between myself and the athletes uh, on the team. Um, You know, I have rules of coaching that I follow. Um, My rule of three, um, you know, this helps me as a coach. I think when you get on a strip, and you're talking to an athlete, you have one minute to talk to that athlete, right? So my rule of three is you give them one really positive thing that you like and you want them to keep doing. You give them one thing that you want to change, you know, and then you give them one thing that, um, you know, maybe they could try that they haven't done yet. So I kind of keep it simple, and it depends on who I'm working with. Um, I change it maybe You know, two things they did well and one thing I want to change if they need a little more of a boost. Um, But my rule of three is to keep it short and simple and then ask them to say it back to me. Because if I don't ask them to say it back to me, I don't know that they've um, connected with me and heard what I'm talking about. Because during that one-minute break, you know, they could be thinking about... McDonald's or something I need to know that they're listening to what I say and then if we still have time I let them tell me what they think so those are kind of all the tools that I use as a coach to kind of keep things under control to keep calm you know to really kind of focus what I do um, as a coach
0: oh, I love that approach I think the rule of three is it's very simple it's very systematic and the fact that you have the athlete repeat it is or repeat it back to you is is actually a great be- best practice because we all know that when you're tired and you're out of breath and depending you know if it's if you know 15 touch de and it's you know 13 13 and they're tired there's a lot of distractions a lot of internal distractions that could come about so having them repeat what you just said is 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 a great way to have the athletes to stay engaged right right and and you know, my,
1: my and, I, and again, I, I work with the athletes in the sense that it's a very rare situation where I'm gonna walk out on the strip and say, you have to do this. Um, because most of them, they're, they're the ones on the strip. They're the ones who are fighting. What I wanna do is give them a sense of you know, three things that they need to be aware of, and then take that into the bout so that they can use those things um, in the way that they can, they can best succeed. And if I, you know, it's very rare that I will call and play, to be honest, in fencing. Because it's so intuitive and it's so fast. But it has happened.
0: It has happened. Got it. Okay. Uh, You know, I've had an opportunity to work with teams and, and athletes. And I've had the opportunity to actually be in the environment, whether if it's, you know, on the practice field or actually... Uh, in the midst or working with a team or coaches in the middle of a game or about. From your perspective, do you think that a mental performance consultant or a sports psychologist could be either beneficial to a team working within the environment or could it be a distraction? And I ask that question because Pete Carroll, who is the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, is very, very... Um, in tune with sports psychology and he promotes it within his culture. And he has a sports psychologist by the name of Michael Gervais who is, he's very involved with the team during practice, during during competition, during the weight room. And just wanted to get your perspective. Do you think having a a consultant or a sports psychologist working within a team uh, during practice and competition, do you think it's beneficial or do you think it could be a distraction?
1: I think it all depends on the culture and philosophy of the program towards sports performance. If the program is hesitant or doesn't know if it's going to be a success, I think it could be a distraction because there are the, the players are going to get mixed signals. They're going to get the sports performance person who's really positive about it, really really buys into it. But there are going to be players and coaches who are like, well, you know, that's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. So I think it really depends on the culture of the program. And that's why I go back again to it, it is only going to be an enhancement in a program where the level of buy in is very high from the top down. And from the bottom up, everybody has to believe in its value in order for it to work. And I think a really, you know, really good example of that, just you know, from what I have seen. I haven't actually talked um, to anybody on this team, but the Warriors have a system. They have a system. They have a. a, a, a they've bought into to, to, um, the coach's ideas and philosophy. And for the most part, it works flawlessly. You know, every so often there's a hiccup. But it seems to me from everything that I've watched, you know the bench players, to the starters, to the assisting coaches, to the you know the water boy, everybody buys into that culture and that system. And all that's mostly a, a type of playing, but it's the same thing. Uh, if it's a mental training system, you know. If everybody buys into it, it's going to be a grand success because you're going to build off everybody's positive attitude. If it's a fifty, you know, fifty split, um, it's going to be mixed. You know, there's a coach, a, a really um, quite a, a well-known coach in women's softball named Sue Enquist. Uh, she played. Uh, she coached at UCLA, I believe, and. Her model is the 33% rule. When you're building a program and you're introducing something new, 33% are going to hate it, 33% are going to sit on the fence, and 33% are going to love it and buy in all the way. And your job as a coach is to get the 33% on the fence up to the buy-in and get rid of the 33%. Mm-hmm. then you have 100% buy-in uh,
0: when you have 100% buy-in you've got a program so there you go that is that's actually that's really 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 interesting because that to me when I hear that is a great way to to build culture yes right and to and if you are going to have a component of mental performance within your culture is Obviously you got the thirty three percent that's, you know, already bought into it and you got thirty three more percent that's on the fence and you get them and in really involved and engaged. I mean that's that's actually that's brilliant. I really I think that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's a very, very great coach and really I you know, one of your questions that you haven't asked yet is um, you know, who are my you know, what's my advice to young coaches and I and I think the biggest thing that I did because in the United States there really isn't a systematic coach training um, school for fencing um, I just found great coaches and studied them mm. Whether they were fencing coaches, volleyball coaches basketball coaches, softball coaches, hockey coaches, I didn't care I went and I watched them and I studied them and I talked to them if I could went to seminars if I could you know, so, so for me learning from those other coaches to how they did it you know, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I just want to make the wheel better. So <laughs> okay. I have to take from everywhere that I can. So, yeah, it's it's a definite way of building culture. And one of the things that, that Sue Enquist is a really big believer in is culture of the,
0: of the program. Now, is there a, a, a fencing coach, either now or that you've worked with in the past, that you looked up to or embraces the whole mental performance um, program. Is there someone that sticks out to?
1: Um, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, my basic mentor as a coach was uh, the current U.S. National, is the current U.S. national coach for, for women's foil now. His name is, his name is Bucky Leach. Um, and he basically gave me every opportunity to work with high-level athletes when I was a young coach. And um, he you know, really, I think, does embrace the programmatic approach and always is looking for an edge. So I would say Bucky Leach is a, is a big influence on me. As an athlete, I actually worked with a coach named um, Bernard Boucher. And I worked with Bernard for four and a half years. And in that four and a half years, I don't think I took more than four fencing lessons with him. And that's I mentioned this because the traditional mode of working with an athlete is individual in a lesson. And for four and a half years all I did was talk with him. and he was a brilliant tactician and psychologist and he would he would really spend time um, talking with me about the psychology and the strategy of what I was doing and how I was approaching fencing and the bout. And so from him, I think I learned um, the value of being reflective and the value of um, thinking about my fencing from a more global perspective than just physicality and tactics. Um, so those two jumped to mind immediately. And then I got to give a shout out to my wife, um, Maureen Griffin, because she is actually my favorite coach. And not just because I'm married to her, but, <laughs> but because, you know, I'm a, I I consider myself a, a pretty pretty good strip side coach, but I think she's brilliant. I mean, I've watched her at world championship level competitions and how she manages her athletes and works with her athletes and, um, and how she uses the psychology of the sport and the strategy of the sport to really get them to excel. I am like definitely one of my favorite, you know, coaches right there. So I think those are three people I've learned an awful lot from and um, you know, there are always coaches. You know, I get there's a list of hundreds and hundreds of coaches because I watch coaches all the time. I still watch coaches all the time. I mean, everywhere I go, one of my main things is to take notes on what coaches do, how they handle athletes, what they talk about. We talk about coaching all the time, and uh, but those three
0: really jump out, I think. Now, your your wife, she she competed as well. She did, yes. And at what level did she compete at?
1: Uh, she was at the national team level in, on, for Canada. So she was one of the top four athletes in Canada in the women's um uh, in the 90s. And she competed at the international level um, on the world the world circuit and uh, I think was probably, I think, in the top 40 in the world at that time. Um, and her goal was to uh, make the 96 Olympics and Canada just fell just like two or three touches short and they did not qualify for 96. Uh, so she never got to go, um,
0: but she was definitely an Olympic-level fencer. Wow, so you, fencing's in the family. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> well, I have, I have one more question before we um, we could come to end on, on our podcast today. Um, and you've alluded to some of the variables of what makes a good coach, but... In the the sport of fencing, what makes a good coach?
1: I think the very first thing is a desire to continuously learn and push yourself. Um, I think a lot of coaches get stagnant, and they just keep doing the same lesson over and over again. Um, So I think the first thing is, in order to be a good coach, you have to push yourself and learn constantly. So having that open mindset... Um, about yourself and about your sport. Then I think the second thing is an absolutely fanatical commitment to excellence at all levels. And by that, I don't mean you have to do it perfect. I mean, if you're a high school athlete who's been fencing one year, I want you to fence to the highest level that you can given your skill and experience. So pushing your athletes in that way Drives them to excel. It's not to win. It's it's a commitment to excellence. Um, I think you need to be determined. I think you need to be strong-willed because you have to. You have to love the fight. And you have to love the the idea of imposing your will on a bout and an athlete and making them. Um, um, work with you in a way that enhances their strengths and then my mantra planning and forethought is a good thing (laughs) so I plan 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 I have detailed plans when I go to competitions I, I lay out my practice schedules I lay out my rest schedules I lay out my diversions so that I can take the team off and do something fun one day and I know that I'm doing it on purpose because I planned it that way, right? Right. So everything that I do is planned out in competitions, and especially at the highest levels, world championships and the Olympics. Too much is on the line not to plan. So that's what I think makes a, a good coach. Add into that a little bit, so just let me add into that a love of teaching. I think you need to love teaching and love working with people, and um, have an ability um, to explain what your ideas are to the athlete in a way that allows the athlete to take your ideas and make them their own.
0: So there you we go. Well, there you have it. <laughs> well, those I think those are excellent guidelines and points for coaches out there within the the sport of fencing to follow always i love talking to you about this topic i think your your passion and your mind for for this topic is is just incredible and i i never get bored talking to you about this topic and i want to thank you for your energy and and your mind and sharing it with us uh, on this podcast so thank you um typically what I want to do at the very end is I always take a couple minutes to promote a book um, or an article or an author out there. Um, Is there, knowing you, that you've read a ton of books throughout your career uh, on mental performance, is there a book that comes to mind that you'd want to share to our listeners? Oh boy. Um, I think there's a lot of them, (laughs) to be honest. Right. Um,
1: The very first one that I started with was Pursuit of Excellence by Terry Orlick. Um, But since then, um, I mean, I've I've read so many. Um, Recently, I've been really interested in um, Anders Ericsson and his studies on excellence, whether it's in sports or music or or chess. That's been a very interesting one for me. I like James Lore. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, he has a couple of books out. I think his most famous is um, Mental Toughness for Athletes. Um, and then, you know, I like um, handbooks. So, like, the US Olympic Committee puts out a. Um, handbook on sports psychology. I, I don't know if it's available to the public, but it's, it's there. Um, and then there is one book um, that I think is phenomenal for kids. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. It is out of print. Um, but you can get it on Amazon second hand. So let me see here if I can find... it. And I can't, so I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to email you the. Um, I'll have to um, email you the name of that book, and then we can you can you can add it in at the beginning. Absolutely, it's, it's it's a phenomenal book for kids. It was uh, written by a Canadian sports psychologist, um, and it has these great um, chapters that you can like photocopy and work with young kids from the ages of about you know nine 10 on up to like 14 it's phenomenal so i'll
0: email that to you beautiful well there's a there's a there's a it seems like there's a handful of books out there yeah oh
1: there's many <laughs> many, many many books absolutely
0: and i'm, I'm very familiar with terry or like a lot of good stuff that terry has put out on various topics within mental performance so uh good good recommendation um as always thank you so much And I will see everyone at the next session.